One, two, three, four. Ichi Ko is the author of the memoir, The Magical Language of Others, winner of the Washington State Book Award and the 2021 Pacific Northwest Book Award. For her poetry collection, A Lesser Love, she received the Pleiades Press Editor's Prize. She's the co-translator of Yi Wan's The World's Lightest Motorcycle and features in Boston Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, and World Literature Today. EJ Ko, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I'm going to read a part about my grandmother, Kumiko, who's my father's mother and the grandmother who raised me. And it's a little bit about her time at Jeju Island when her and her parents were hiding out in the mountain at the time. And her father, to check on their friends and neighbors, comes down the mountain and he hasn't returned for several days now. When Kumiko and her mother came down the mountain, the island was scorched. They passed through burnt villages, their voices lodged in their throats. Many of the dead could not be found, their bodies tossed over cliffs, hidden away in caves or chopped into bits, signs of covering up. Mothers cupped the air with their hands, holding the missing faces of their husbands and sons. Their wailing and screaming filled the hearts of all who sifted through the remains. Teeth, hair, dead horses and pigs, then mosquitoes. The smoke reddened the sun. They covered their mouths or they would taste the corpses. There were children, the girls Kumiko played with, and women and men lying with limbs bent over each other splayed across the road. Tens of thousands of them idle along collapsed terraces where the islanders once danced, pumping with life. It was Kumiko who crossed the road over a bridge and came to a part of the ground soaked in blood. When she asked after her father, somebody pointed to this ground. She saw nothing except the many faces around her, mouths wide and sullen. One islander, a grandmother, said to her, your father was captured at the bottom of the mountain and dragged into a demonstration. She explained that a demonstration was a public display. A group of men, unfed and irate, corralled a crowd together. They put on such displays on behalf of the country and on higher orders foregoing restraint. What evil was born out of demonstrations? Then where is he? Kumiko asked. The grandmother opened her palm toward the ground. Here. Looking closer, flesh and bone, gristle mistaken for bark and debris between the stones. At once the road became vivid, and Kumiko recognized her father. Road, father, road. They stoned him until he was gravel. The grandmother said as though she were not speaking to Kumiko, but a deity who had come down from the mountain to judge her for the truth. Many of us stoned him to prove our innocence. We stoned our own again and again. 
They stoned him overnight. They pitched blunt rocks harder over days for sport until finally boredom before the body was pulverized. What was exchanged between the police and the groups of men and the islanders, between the rocks and the bones, between the body and the road? What was supposed to be understood? Though they did not know it, the days that Kumiko and her mother spent hiding on the mountain were given a name. Such were the questions raised by the Jeju Island Massacre of April 3rd, 1948. So I imagine that and so many uh, passages in your memoir were difficult to write, difficult to approach, and it just strikes me how much your memoirs, uh, there's a work of many kinds of translation because you're writing across time, you're writing across languages. Just tell us a little bit of how, how you approached that passage and the organization. That's very true. For this certain passage about what happened in Jeju Island, it was something I heard since I was a little girl. Um, there's another thread in this book, another story, which is of my mother's mother and her tragic death in Korea when my mother was just a teenager. And both the story of my mother's mother and my father's mother's experience with her family. I mean, these were like my bedtime stories. They were stories I remember and I listened to before I could speak. I had um, sort of delayed speech and I had quite bit of trouble with learning and also with just simply getting into school. I think I must have been five before I was uttering some of my first words and trying to um, articulate. But simple communication was very difficult for me and was difficult for my family, especially in a family where we're speaking several languages. They hope to instill English in me. It's the language of survival once they immigrated to the States. And my my grandmother, uh, my father's mother, who raised me, was speaking Japanese. That was her private language. It was a remnant of the past and sort of the the, the past of the occupation with Korea being occupied by Japan. And my, my mother and father spoke in Korean, and this was a much more intimate language that I wanted to have access to, but would also keep me away from the English that they hoped me to get. And all of this was sort of compounded by my um, difficulty with speech. And so there was a lot of frustration and fear. My relationship to language and the relationship that these languages had to each other, that was something... I felt very sensitive to since I was young, since before I could speak. I think I knew these things before, um, and maybe it contributed to the fear of of engaging these languages. These stories, they they were something that that felt a way to not only look at the language and history, and and it also became a drive for me later in life to to do the research and find the the overlapping points of contact in re recorded history. How, where are we here on this day, on this date? And where is my family? Especially with those histories that 
don't have records that have records that were sort of burned away. Um, there's a lot of uh, different types of labor that goes into it, not just the, the reading of history through different languages and the perspective of different countries, but also being able to see um, what's not being said and um, making space for the, the oral testimonies. I'd like to talk more about this hesitancy that you had to begin speaking fully. You obviously had these perceptions and you were taking in a lot, being in a trilingual household, um, family, and with all of these influences coming in. I'm very interested in the origins of that. I think that people in different periods of their life, periods of silence, I know when I immigrated, I became more quiet than I had been when I was in America. And then I became loud as I am now. As a poet, you have a facility with language, a precision in terms of what you mean to say, what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Some of the expressions you used were making space. So the silence is a way to make space. Were you hesitant to make mistakes as well because you're dealing with these different languages and maybe you're not feeling at home in all of them? Yes, I'd love to speak to that. And I hear you when you say that um, the experience of being relocated or dislocated in some sense can create us to be quiet and then slowly um, sort of with some hesitance come reveal ourselves again. And, uh, and I feel that that's true with uh, every time I move. So um, thank you for bringing that up. Thinking about your question here, I'm reminded of the, the title of the me memoir is The Magical Language of Others. I mean, that really is the strangest title to give um, a, a body of work, but I remember it needed to have the word magic in it because I was doing a little, I think I was just beginning to do some research on discourse analysis, and I had just met this lovely woman and she had me reading and I came across this passage that said, I mean, to this day, from what we know about how we communicate to each other, about how languages work, um, every word um, brings up in each person such a unique image or reference that it's actually impossible for us to understand each other completely. So, for example, if I say table, the table that will sort of arise for you is very different for me. And if I uh, arrange them like table, cup, notebook, what comes to you and what might feel generally like nostalgia, maybe I'll feel that too, but it'll be very, very different from mine. And it's it was just this beautiful piece of information that seemed to make sense a lot of things for me before with speech development and finding difficulty with languages was just, I think I just needed to hear or read in this case that it's, it's near impossible for one person to fully understand another person. And yet somehow by magic, I mean, it, it, by magic, we love, we fall in love. We teach each other. We care about each other. We have these exp uh, emotional experiences together. Even if, you know, all of that seems impossible, by some magic we can do these things. And that always 
surprised me and delighted me and I thought would be so fitting to encapsulate all of this because it really it really does feel like magic and I think that's where poetry comes in for me the the difficulties I had with language and I mean in any language to try and articulate how I feel at the time or even learn the words that I didn't have so in the beginning what you you sort of see me go through having an eating disorder and you see sort of acts that uh, come from uh, having going through bulimia and then anorexia but I don't ever use these words in the book if you notice I never say eating disorder because I never had those words all it was was a thing I did and a habit and so that's how it manifests in the book is the truth to my experience was that was just something I did and this is the way I felt and it really did feel like I was at the time the only person in the world going through this really strange habit and this relationship with my body and food but when I came to poetry that, that this was very different because poetry has this magical essence where suddenly language felt possible in a way that any one language didn't feel possible in poetry in a poem what you can do with words I felt like oh this is a way that I could finally speak so we we think of languages and we think of the Korean Japanese and English but when you know even when I get to the moment where I was a hip-hop dancer, you know, we speak differently. The language and lingo ch changes. And then when I get to poetry, that's also another sort of language. It's completely different from any way I've been thinking or speaking before. And it's really poetry I had to arrive at so that I could go back and be the translator, you know, that can translate these letters. It, it, it sort of goes in, in this order, and it's a circular circular process for me to come back. And so it's very true what you're saying, and there's several things, several threads that are interesting that I'd like to, you know, tease out uh, there, because it's true we each have our own symbolic um, subterranean world, and we have all these symbols and memories swimming around in our consciousness. There's another thing that you addressed, and that is how some cultures are more elusive, maybe in Korea or Japan. And in America, as I experienced, there's a lot more direct speech, although of course there's subtlety and there's poets there as well that, that may, may feel less at home in the direct speech world that is common in America. But it seems like in America, often emotions or, you know, everything, there's a label for everything. So as you said, you didn't have those words for bulimia or eating disorder. But in America, there's a label like it's no you can have like a feeling without it being labeled or a syndrome. So it's interesting the mistranslations or misunderstandings between cultures. So you have these different levels of emotional registers, but it doesn't mean there's there's these subterranean thing, feelings that you then in your memoir are translating say into American English, and it's hard to bring that all across. Right, right. I think that's interesting. In, in one instance, and, and the reading is going to be, I, th I don't think I've ever said this in an er interview before, and maybe it's because it's a new thought that I've had, and my thought and sort of the way I talk about the book changes constantly. That's what I notice. My, my interviews tend to be very different. Um, 
just because as as I'm changing, you know, my thoughts and feelings are changing toward the book. But I realize I've I've written something that isn't it's not super easy to read. You know, I I didn't and I, and I think in in my mind I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I I I wrote something that asks for a lot of effort on the part of the reader and a lot of investment and a lot of enrollment, right? It's it's almost like for instance the passage I read today it's it's not the whole story right it just we end pointing to a date and a one line in the the record of history and what that does is really say this is just the very beginning and to know more to 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 understand this fully it's your turn right you you actually have to leave depart this book and this this story and go do the do go find out about the Jeju Island massacre. What happened? What happened to this island? What is happening to it right now? What is the sort of tourism industry? What's uh, what's being said there and not said there? It sort of continues to point. And yeah, I, I'm just reminded that at any point in the book, there are there are things uh, hidden and, like you said, subterranean. But there are things that you that that for me reading it again you you really do have to look in and make make the effort to find those different levels and layers for instance i have the moment that my mother buys me a coat in korea and i think what's really interesting is on on the surface there's a lot about beauty and that's a very important theme is this idea of a korean um, dominant culture of beauty and what that entails and, and what sort of language comes out of that what kind of psychology comes out of that i don't think it's it's critical or not critical i think it it just tries to put everything on the table for the reader to see themselves but what you see on another layer and another reading is the sort of economic class difference from when I'm here. I think a, the common theme is that you can it's easier to move people than it is to move money. And so you see me growing up here in the States, I'm having some trouble. I'm making boiling water with Tabasco soup, just Tabasco. And just, um, <laughs> I thought it was delicious, but having ice cream for lunch and having boiled water with hot sauce, I thought was a great breakfast. You know, these, these ways of just trying to make it through as a as a teenager pretending to be an adult and then arriving in this uh sort of glamorous up and coming city in Korea where there's drivers and dresses and these huge shopping malls i mean that sort of that reads differently as well it's just just seeing y- yourself enter and say oh my f- my parents live differently than i do and and how does that what does that do to the communication between us? You know, we, we, we are not, you know, they're my parents and yet they're of a different economic class than I am suddenly. And how how do they see me? And how am I perceived by them, right? And and so things like that become very interesting and, and nuanced. And I want to go back that you, you brought up your, your mother and I want to speak about, you know, the letters that formed uh, the inspiration, just one of the hearts of your memoir. Yeah, my, my, the, the memoir began as just, I know we were talking about this a little bit, but they just began as the letters. I was 
studying poetry and translation at the time that I, when I finished, I reunited with my parents and found these letters. And my goal was just to translate them. And in translating them, I was preparing a two-page introduction where you have sort of the content of the whole whole book and memoir in, in those two pages. And the response I got was really enlightening to me because it was that, you know, the letters in and of themselves are such precious artifacts, but it's the, these two pages that really sort of captures what's going on. It's the very context and need of the letters. So I, you know, had to switch my mindset, switch genres entirely almost and start the book over and say, how do I turn these two pages into 200 pages? And how do I look at these letters again and and bring in very different threads and stories into um, what I think is the whole story? So. And how did your perspective change over time as you were looking back on your young self and, and those assumptions and feelings and, and now? I think um, the, the hardest chapter to write, I think some people might be surprised to hear this, but the hardest chapter to write was the, the one with my brother. It's the first sort of narrative chapter when I'm in Davis with my brother. And I think scenes with my brother are always so hard to write because I, you know, this, this is a relationship I'm still processing. I'm still processing um, being with my, my parents again or having them nearby. My brother is also nearby. But that that first chapter I'd written so many times and it, it, it had so many different versions. It used to be really, really long. I, I pared it down quite a bit and then I lengthened it again. It had classroom scenes. It had scenes of, um, I was bullied quite a bit at the school. Um, I was sort of the the target of, racist bullying and and that's not something I understood or had a word for I was having a lot of trouble at that school you know but I've I also had one English teacher say something really kind to me and that was the first kind thing I had heard um, while being in Davis and it, it really shook me to tears to hear anything kind at that point in time but really I, I think in the final version of the book I a lot of those things sort of drifted away and what I focused on was what was my everyday life like and and is that interesting enough and I had to wrestle with that that is interesting enough because that was my life you know I I woke up and I just stared outside the window for hours you know I would record how much I could sleep so that time would go by faster and in doing so time went much slower it was sort of waking up and my brother taking me to school and then coming back, that was just sort of the reality. And I, I think in order to write that chapter, I had to do a lot of growing and changing it. You know, I, I think sometimes I get the question, well, how, you know, you're a poet, how did you suddenly switch to writing prose? And it, and it seems like that might be difficult, but I think what's more difficult is how do I grow up enough to be able to write about these things that happened to me? So I think like the person I am in which I begin writing these scenes, well, by the time I finish them, I have to be a very different person in order that for that scene to come alive. 
I feel that way about my poems too. If I begin the poem and I'm sitting down to write that poem, by the time I finish that poem, and in order to finish that poem, I have to be a very different person. And so the the work and the labor was really invisible. It was everything that was not seen. It's everything um, between the drafts, I think. And one thing that we have that really uh, discussed was the fact that when you're speaking about that period of time with your brother, your parents were back in Korea, so that you had this sudden departure of your parents, and in a sense, you you and your brother were raising um, each other. And so, tell us how that happened and how you reflected upon that. Right. When so, when I was fourteen, we were uh, I was born and raised in California in the states in America and I and when I was 14 my dad got a tremendous job offer from South Korea in the following year he planned to take that offer and um, my mother went with him so my parents moved to South Korea for this job on a contract that started for three years and they moved me to Davis California um, quite a bit away from where we we'd lived at the time and they put us in a little house and you know at the time the the belief was that we can really do this it's just three years it was the sort of stamina and uh, the ambition to to succeed but the three years you know became more it became five years and seven years and it was ended up being about nine years before I reunited with them in Seattle. And so it was a long period of time. I was a fully grown person before I I faced them, really. So when me and my brother were there in Davis, you know, he was just 19. We were both kids and trying to be adults and not understanding fully what we'd uh, signed on for, whether that that act of signing on for it, whether that was okay for us to do, you know, at that age. But that's what I think um, is established in the first chapter or two is, is understanding the, the circumstances of us living alone and trying to go to school and trying to be a family of our own um, in the midst of everything. There were a couple of things that interested me while listening to EJ Cole. One of the things I found interesting was towards the beginning when she was talking about how it's near impossible for one person to fully understand another person. And even if all seems impossible, by some magic, we can do these things like falling in love and becoming close to someone else. I love how Ijeko talked about how the way we are able to love and make connections is through magic. And I really agree with her. It seems hard in life to make deep connections with other people especially when you have to give a lot of effort into relationships. Like EJ Co said, we will never be able to fully understand another person because we aren't that other person. But even if we will never fully encompass this other person, like fully knowing everything about them and understanding them, we still fall in love and we still care about them so much. And I think it's a really pretty concept. Another thing I found interesting while listening to EJ Co was when she was talking about her struggle with eating and how she felt like the only person in the world going through this really strange habit. I really felt for EJ Ko when she was talking about this, and I think it represents how a lot of people feel when they are going through something. 
For E.J. Ko, the words were not there to explain what she was going through, which could represent people in general that are not there to help other people understand what they are going through. When people go through hard times, it feels like they are the only ones going through it because it may seem that nobody else is going through that. But it goes back to what E.J. Ko was talking about, how we never fully understand other people. So we could not see at first glance what other people are going through. Another thing I found interesting while listening to E.J. Ko was when she was talking about poetry and how while she struggled with speech and communication, poetry was a way that she could finally speak. I really understand this. For me, poetry is a way in which I could, in a way, speak for myself and express myself. Whenever I feel overwhelmed and that I can't talk about it because the words can't come out of my mouth, I sit down and write about what I'm feeling, and I think it really helps. It makes me feel better, and sometimes when I feel those overwhelming feelings again, seeing my writing helps me because my feelings are written out in words. Now, back to the interview. Yes, one thing I know that, you know, when you're, particularly if you're very anxious and you're widely read, uh, when you're young, 14, you may feel like, or 15, you may feel like, oh, I'm, at the time you think you're kind of adult, you know, you can, you feel like you have these kind of perceptions, but it's only looking back or, you know, after a number of years of passing, oh, I was so young. Or you look at those photos and you think, oh, my God oh, this person was really almost like on her own. And how did she even navigate? And you almost wonder, how did she get that strength? I think that's very true. It reminds me how when I was sort of fact-checking and going back on the dates, it's so fascinating how our memory works. For me, even if we say 14, 15, I feel much younger. I, I recall those years as is almost feeling like I was a few years younger than that. That's how it was. I guess it became memory because it was felt that way. And so the memory feels that way to me. But for my mother, in the case of my mother, she always thinks I'm a little older than I actually was during those years. She goes, oh, I always thought you were a little bit older. And and I find that interesting, not just sort of my perception of myself and, and my sort of grieving at the time but but how I'm being perceived by everybody around me and the expectations um, I had of myself and the expectations that were on me I think a lot of the and I've said this before but I think a lot of what hurt um, my heart at the time was I had been born and raised in an American culture where it's more important to be with your family than to pay for them and my parents were, you know, born and raised of a culture where it's more important to pay for your family than to be with them. And so distance and um, managing my expectations and heartbrokenness, it, I think I, it, it exacerbated um, what was already a difficult situation. I think that uh, my experience as well, and not just, uh, I can't speak directly to the Korean or the Korean American experience, but in a lot of Asian cultures too, there is an element of stoicism and being able to uh, sustain and withstand hardships as well. Uh, whether that's you know an emotional hardship or deprivation that way, or others, it's just you hold it in, you hold it in, and um, which I respect a lot. And I I realize that some of that has been passed down to me. 
but I and I compare it to other um, people born in America that maybe don't have. It's a very expressive culture um, where every every thought there's not there's not a lot of thoughts that are um, that one would not feel free to speak about. And so um, it's a it's an interesting divide. I also related it to your story, but in, in a different way because I came to Paris when I was sixteen. I came when I was fifteen, actually, but I came to live when I was sixteen. Yeah. And it was, but it was a different situation. But my mother had been telling all of us children since we were very young, uh, you know, when you're sixteen, you know, you can leave home. And, yeah. <laughs> and she, she said it for years and I don't know if she even meant it but she was she, I don't know she's independent and so it, I, so it wasn't being left but it was just feeling like well I better leave <laughs> she didn't know I would go far. so um it's interesting I could relate to some somehow being in a different country and not having that safety net, which is a lot of a lot of people have. I think it speaks to one's resilience, or it adds to your resilience when you make it through. Yeah, I, I think so too. And you know, to add to that, I think now now that I think about how I was growing up and having trouble with you know very basic ways of communicating, and um, you know, my my mother was really close to me, and I was really close to my mother growing up. It we we fought quite a bit, but I. I, I, you know, I, I didn't read a lot of books. I, I didn't, um, I didn't know anything. And I think I was also very aware of that. And so, you know, that must have, have done something to, to some of that pain was it felt like um, somebody I thought belonged to me, right? My mother was, was sort of torn away. Somebody that um, I, I needed as maybe, for the rest of my adult life and I think um having my relationship with my brother sort of sour him dealing with his own world having to find a job and having to try and get our house bills together at such a young age you know these things that were forced onto him it 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 wasn't easy for him in a sense poetry and then also your dance saved you would you say Hmm, that's interesting. I think poetry was the first time I be I, I could say something. I think poetry was the first language that felt like it made sense to me, and I could jump into it right away and speak it and write it, and it it did the things that I wanted my words to do, and it could say the things I had always hoped to say. I think dance was, it was close, but, it, you know, it, I wasn't ready for dance at the time. You know, I was in a competitive hip-hop dance crew in near Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, and we were performing, you know, in clubs. I was quite young, and I thought that was my whole entire life. I, I, I even up to until that point, I was had no interest in school or especially any education or books. It was just, I thought that was my life, and I gave everything to it and so it was exhilarating in that sense that I could find something I can pour my body and my energy into but it wasn't like poetry because in in poetry that was where I asked who I was who am I what do I sound like what do do I have anything to say 
and that's not to say that you can't have that experience with dance I think you know you you can it's just I I didn't have that experience with um, dancing I, I I guess I wasn't ready but if I were to dance now right um, I would bring what I learned from poetry with me which is when I dance I'm not trying to be clean I'm not trying to make sure I like my blocking and you know basically that's your formation everything is on par and what I should have would be focusing on now would be like how am I showing who I am right and so poetry was really I think the first one that I I, I can I understood these things I actually can speak to the difference between dance and, and writing because I, I write and I dance so but I do agree with you um you know, we live in a, there's probably not an hour of our waking life unless we're just so intent on some silent activity, but we usually are speaking every hour of our day. So most of us don't have a relationship with them. And so I find that dance is a very freeing thing. It's about energy and form and shape and beauty, but it doesn't really, as you say, necessarily speak to who I am. It might speak to some kind of essence or beauty or selves we want to be in our dreams maybe, but it's not about the daily stuff of life, which poetry can be both. So I, I adore dance. I would find it by itself an insufficient expression of who I am, as you say. You have these love letters, you have this practice of writing love letters to strangers, which takes a lot of courage. And you also ask <laughs> them about themselves, the people that I guess write to you through your website or maybe through your other social media, I'm not sure as well. And you ask them about a struggle that they've gone through. And then you take these, you see these struggles and you do some kind of love letter alchemy and you write to them. So how, I mean, I don't know if you can speak personally about that or is it too intense? Yeah, no, it's it's lovely. And I also want to say it's it's just so fun. This interview is so fun and getting to know you and seeing how much of um, how we've evolved uh, have similar resonance uh, throughout from the dancing to the writing to the to the creative process and to also our some of our childhood moments. I think that's really special. And so thank you for sharing that with me. I, I, I always love hearing about that. You know, the love letters, I love the love letters. I, I, there's, there's something about the love letters that always remind me what, you know, reminds me of the most important thing I do, which is uh, connect with another person. It doesn't have to be, you know, thousands of people. It's it's just it can just be one person, and how um, meaningful that is, and how much I I needed that, how much how meaningful that is to me as well. I I started the love letter project a few years ago. It was before the poetry book and the memoir came out, and I I, I was in a sort of I was deeply depressed and and very just sad thinking that I was ready to give up writing um, so I stopped writing for a bit but I realized that there was one sort of writing that I couldn't give up and it was writing letters it was just the one thing that stayed so I went on uh, social media one night very late in the night and I'd say I said I'm going to write a thousand love letters to strangers and if you want one just let me know 
And when I woke up, I, you know, I got dozens of requests from all over the world, all over the world. And um, even from South Korea, um, and as close as just across, you know, across the, my, my neighborhood. And I just remember feeling like, oh, this is something I want to do forever. This was something I, this is, this is why I write, you know, before all the writing and all the workshops and classes, it made it seem like writing was the thing. But what the love letters taught me was that the, the writing is not the thing to aim for or to go for. It's, you know, having a beautiful piece of work is wonderful, but it's a result of something else. And that thing is human connection. It's being with somebody. It's the listening and hearing and the taking time. It's the being, it's the everyday sort of um, stuff, I think. So it really, I mean, it really helped me and it's something I still do. I do it every week, every weekend. I, you know, no matter how busy I am, I I write a, a few love letters and I, I think I'm at, I don't I think I'm, I, I'm about at about 140 or so and I'm, I'm sort of making my way, but I try not to write them so quickly either. And they've always been two pages, kind of like my mother's letters to me. And whatever the struggle problem, and a lot of the times it's, can you write a love letter for my friend, you know? I just try to write in a way as if I'm right there next to them, right with them, so that my letters have, you know, the ability to transport me there. It's not really giving answers. It's or even giving um, a way out. It's just saying that, you know, I, I'm here with you and I remember what you're saying and and all of that. So sometimes I meet, I you know, when I do readings or when readings were, phys- you know, in person, I would meet, I would meet some of the recipients of my love letters and we would just, it was such a beautiful thing. It, and it, and I just love it. I love every part of it. And that's a lovely thing to do. And I, keep, I mean, I imagine that sometimes, I mean, even if you're not in love with them as a lover, you can't be in love with a thousand people or 140 people, but in that way. But do you sometimes feel just to the act of writing to them and listening to them on page closer to them at times than those people who are physically present? Well, what I found that... I, I think this is more perpendicular to the answer you might be looking for, but it seems like what often gets written to me in the in the request for the love letter is something like, I've never told anyone this before, or my you know, family doesn't know, or people don't know and this about me, or I've never said this much in one sitting. So I, I think there's an element where you and I, I feel this is true for me, too. In some ways, you can tell a stranger more about yourself than you might feel comfortable with telling somebody um, so close to you, like a family member. But I, but I don't think that this has a sort of bearing on love, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't think it means like this person is any less loved or loves the people around them any less because of what they know or don't know. And, and for me, I feel like I I do love everyone that I write this the letter to. You know, I, I, I love them deeply as a, another human being, as another person. Um, 
I love them for, for giving me the chance to love them, for me to sit there writing the love letter and practice, right, feeling what love feels like, uh, making love a practice, but also sharing that practice with somebody. Uh, I, I do think, you, you know, maybe it's not a romantic love, but I think it, it, in some ways it's greater, just the, the, the love of people and the love of humanity, because that is a direct reflection of you, the love of yourself, right? It's, it's not just to accept somebody, you know, you appreciate them. Well, whatever they write to me, good or bad, it's just the chance to just show them that they're appreciated for every part of that. And um, that every single thought or emotion that runs through them is okay. And those are things that I, I remind myself of. So it's, it's, it's just a really sacred thing to me and, and as full of love, much more than I can sort of describe. <laughs> I do think it greater in the sense as it doesn't come with the expectations or the duties or just because there's no blood link or where you feel that there was just something handed down, that it's a connection that one, you both had to make an effort to do. Um, so it's very interesting. I don't know if you would share one of those letters or if you'd like to perhaps read from A Lesser Love because I think, you know, poems are like love letters too. Oh, you know, I could read I could read a, a love poem to you. I never read it, but I think it's I think it's fun. It's called Valentine Chapter. I tell you there's a devil in my wall. You ask, does he like Spartacus? On showtime, we watch the part where Glaber murders his wife's father. I ask, would you kill my father to have me? Of course, you say. This minute you smell of red ginseng. I ask how you could be with me. How could you forgive me? I can't change. You look up and say, I am patient. I can take the lives you couldn't live and hold them in my arms. I love it. It's the tenderness and the humor, and it's just a very, the intimacy of this moment that seems crystallized. Um, no, I, th I think that that is really great. I wish for more people to have this kind of connection with language, with with their inner selves. And I know everyone has their own way, but and sometimes this world is moving so fast or we sometimes don't feel like we have permission to share those parts of ourselves. So I think that um, what you've shared through your memoir, through your poetry, through all those who are lucky to receive a love letter from you, <laughs> that's a special kind of award. It's really a beautiful thing that you're, you're giving to the world and I'm sure it is it, it helps those who need that find that sacred place in language we always ask some questions about of course the importance of the arts but looking into the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation what are your feelings about some ways we might improve our our current systems when it comes to the, the big issues or global warming or education all of these systems of ours that could be improved. I remember with all that's going on, it's it's 
it's quite difficult to find words and it's so massively saddening <laughs> um especially right now and i remember it, it was i i felt like that especially on one on one of these days and i did a that week i did i think i did like two classroom visits and then i went to it was virtual they're all virtual but i also went to this um spoken word poetry night for sort of youth youth spoken word and you know across the board you know the students in the classrooms shared their work and their experiences the spoken word poets shared you know the poems they wanted to write the things they want to say with so much just so much clarity and so much um so much hope i guess hope feels like an over done word but I, I think it returns because there's a sort of essence to it that 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 creates a, a sort of forward momentum and at the time when I was sort of listening to these young poets and writers and students talk about where they want to go I think what what dawned on me is for me and many others like me you know we're just so just get out of the way <laughs> I I had a sense that I I really really want to support young writers, um, especially young Asian women writers uh, who have a lot to say. It's not like I have to speak on anyone's behalf, and it's not like this is a monolith of stories. Not even you know my memoir or poetry. This is not representative. You know. Uh, it, there's so many different experiences and even inside those unique experiences there's even there's even more variation and more stories to be told and so i think a part of how i feel is is to do to to get out of the way and 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 let let really like young people come forward and 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 take things on um i think that would be wonderful <laughs> Well, thank you so much, uh, E.J. Ko, for inviting us into your imaginative world, for your poetry, memoir, love letters, translations, which reveal worlds of loss, memory, immigration, mother-daughter stories. And thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. I, I so appreciate you and, and your work and what you're doing to, you know, to really dig into these processes and share them, you know, across the world and across communities. So thank you for taking the time to talk with me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Megan Hagenbarth with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer and Digital Media Coordinator on this podcast was Megan Hagenbarth. Additional Digital Media Coordinator is Jacob A. Preisler. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.